1: Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And we are going to continue to do that even while I'm on sabbatical and not recording full-length episodes until after the new year. But as we were going through some old content, we realized that there were some posts that only went out to a select group of listeners, and many of you, if you've been following the podcast for the past two or three years, have not heard heard these posts, and these are short answers to tough theological and apologetics questions. So we're going to be bringing a new one to you every day during sabbatical. Here's today's. Did you ever think you'd be living in a day when believing in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus's blood would be controversial among Christians? Welcome to 2018 when saying Jesus died for my sins is considered at best a pagan idea and at worst, psychologically damaging to children. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? This is possibly the most important question a Christian can ask. Did he go to the cross in order to take the punishment of our sins upon himself? To bring us into an adoptive relationship with God the Father? To ransom us to God? To set a moral example for us to follow? To victoriously defeat sin and death? The answer? Yes, to all of the above. Scripture uses all kinds of different language and metaphors to describe the atoning work of Jesus, and a complete picture of the cross will only be found in considering all of them. For example, prior to the 1800s, when theologians talked about the cross, they generally didn't narrow it down to just one thing— Dallas Theological Seminary professor Glenn Crider noted that they were, quote, like poets unpacking how beautiful an event this is, end quote. However, in more modern times, one atonement theory in particular is under attack. First, let's define some terms. What is atonement? Theologian Wayne Grudem defines the atonement as the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. The word itself breaks down into three parts, at one meant. Put simply, atonement is how we are brought into oneness with God through Jesus. The primary understanding of the atonement throughout Scripture and church history is what is called substitutionary atonement, sometimes referred to as vicarious atonement. This is the idea that when Jesus died on the cross, He took our place, that He died instead of us as a substitute. But the Bible doesn't talk about Jesus only as a substitute. It also talks about Him paying the penalty for our sin. This is what is referred to as Penal Substitutionary Atonement, or PSA. Many Christians, including myself, would consider the doctrine of PSA to be central to the gospel. Although this isn't the only way to understand the atonement, it is one way that is fundamental to salvation and essential to the historic Christian faith. But isn't PSA something that was first thought up in the Middle Ages? Often, when discussing the Atonement, someone will bring up the challenge that PSA was not something the earliest Christians believed, that it was a later invention of Anselm of Canterbury in the Middle Ages. What Anselm introduced in his work, Cur Deus Homo, was not the classic understanding of PSA, even though the two are often conflated and or confused. While PSA states that Jesus paid the penalty for sin by dying in the place of sinners, Anselm's theory had more to do with God's offended honor and dignity being satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus. That is referred to as penal satisfaction. They go together, but they aren't the same thing. The doctrine of PSA is all over both Old and New Testaments, as well as the early church fathers. It is decidedly the very essence of Christianity cosmic child abuse? Recent efforts by several progressive Christian writers have sought to vilify the idea of substitutionary atonement, characterizing it as a misunderstanding of the cross. Even though he doesn't deny a broader definition of substitutionary atonement, Steve Chalk describes the cosmic child abuse of PSA in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, as, quote, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the Church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love, end quote. There are a couple of problems with this view. First, to portray Jesus as some sort of helpless victim of the Father is to misunderstand the nature of the Trinity— The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Jesus wasn't a defenseless casualty of divine wrath. He is God. He, as God, became flesh and laid His life down of His own will, John 10, 18. It's actually the reason He came to earth. Secondly, PSA involves God's wrath, and to modern readers, this idea can seem terribly intolerant. But it is entirely biblical and is actually very good news when we understand His love, justice, holiness, and mercy. I once met a woman who had been horribly abused by her father when she was a child. He was mean, vindictive, and seemed to even take pleasure in her pain. Understandably, whenever she heard language referencing God's wrath or anger, she winced. All she could think of was the senseless and petty wrath of her earthly father. We humans have the tendency to confuse the sinful abuse of some of our earthly fathers with the perfect justice and mercy of a God who is, by His very essence, love. God's wrath is not petty or spiteful. It is just, holy, and loving. In the words of Derek Rishmoy, quote, God's wrath is not some irrational flare-up of anger and foaming hatred. Wrath is God's settled, just attitude of opposition toward all that defaces creation. It is his stance and judgment of displeasure toward sin as well as his will to remove it, end quote. "The wrath of God does not contradict his love. He has wrath because of his love." Theologian Miroslav Volv realized this after witnessing the horrors of the Bosnian War, quote: "I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed— My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Quote. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to unbelievers. It was true then, and it is still true now. The penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus was not a late invention, nor is it some type of cosmic child abuse. It is the heart of the gospel, and that is indeed good news. If you enjoyed listening to this blog post, you can sign up to receive my weekly posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button.